0: Piper J. Drake is a best-selling multi-genre hybrid author. She wrote her first stories, doodling in the margins while attending high school and college courses. After setting aside books and writing for a relationship that didn't work out, she decided to reclaim her first love. So in 2010, Piper submitted to and won a contest. The book was signed to a deal, and so began her publishing career. She's since published over 20 works, spanning the genres of romantic suspense, paranormal romance, science fiction, and fantasy. To learn more about Piper's journey, growing up with Thai roots, and learning to embrace the romance genre, be sure to listen to today's episode of the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. In exchange for your support on Patreon, you'll receive monthly one-on-one sessions with yours truly. I'm a certified master life coach, and I've worked with best-selling authors, award-winning filmmakers, and everything in between. Help fund the show today and get the support you need to take the next step forward on your own unique journey as a storyteller. Again, visit patreon.com forward slash Ethan All right. Enough with that. On to today's show. Piper J. Drake, welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Yeah, excited to have you. And for people who don't know who you are, what would you like to share about yourself?
1: Well, I think probably the first order of business is to mention that I am an author of romantic suspense, paranormal romance, science fiction, And fantasy. Uh, I write some steampunk as well, but I consider that a part of the science fiction world. Mm. So I definitely am an author who enjoys uh, writing across different genres. And I guess they come all under the umbrella of speculative fiction or commercial fiction, depending on who you speak to.
0: Mm. What is commercial fiction versus not commercial fiction?
1: Well... I think it's just who you speak to and how they decide to define or classify particular things. Uh, I would say uh, most of my writing uh, does not fall under a literary category. Mm -hmm. And so if it's not literary, uh, then it's potentially speculative fiction or a more commercial genre. No. Mm -hmm.
0: So, pretending for a moment that I'm not an Oxford, Oxford English, um, professor deconstructing, um, your literature. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm getting from this is that you really enjoy writing books and stories and you seem to be, I, I don't know, I'm all over the place. So I'm curious how that, how that worked for you and how that's evolved and, and, maybe if there's not an umbrella term, some sort of umbrella theme or reason why these books come into being?
1: I think the TLDR version of my overall writing career is chasing joy, right? Mm. Making writing stories, what makes me happy. But honestly, if we dig a little bit deeper, evolution is a fantastic word to apply to any writing career. I think. Uh, I began, oh goodness, maybe 2010 was my first published work. And I was writing under a different pen name at that time, PJ Schneider. Mm. I was unrepresented. I did not have an agent. And I had submitted into a contest for a new digital publisher who was looking for fresh voices. Mm. Uh, And I tossed my hat into the ring with my absolute best swing at a paranormal romance uh, cleaned up to the best of my abilities and it won the contest i was incredibly incredibly excited and happy and the first thing that the editor talked to me about is i need you to take another pass at your draft uh, to take out these crutch words and think harder about it Mm -hmm. and it was a list of two to three crutch words that i rather embarrassingly leaned on really hard Mm. words like that, uh, for example, is Mm -hmm. a great crutch word that, you know, I I used way too much in that magazine, in that manuscript. And she said, once you go through and think about those, I think that my developmental pass will be much more helpful to you. And I thought that was very fair. So, Mm. you know, I took that first pass myself based on the crutch words alone. Uh, that list of things that you should look for first, which I have since really learned to kind of create lists and look for myself before I turn my draft. So mm. it was a lesson that I took forward through my career.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then went from there. And I wrote paranormal romance for a while. I wrote a few short steampunk uh, stories. And I was also kind of really working towards um, science fiction romance as well. Mm. Uh, and I was picked up by Harlequin's Karina press. Uh, so then I was, you know, multiple publishers still kind of had my eye on, uh, wanting an agent and breaking into the New York traditional publishing space. Mm.
0: So all this was unagented so far. Yeah.
1: Yes. I wrote and had acquired, Oh, six to eight, maybe even 10 works. Uh, mm. I also wrote for, um, oh gosh, the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences is a steampunk series and I was hired as one of the game writers for the role, the RPG, the role-playing game. Cool. Uh, so I even made it into the tabletop space and that was <laughs> a really, really cool experience. So I was open to try any kind of interesting project, I would say. Um, and I did manage to get an offer of representation and I tried... Uh, a couple of months with an agent for a bit, and that agent and I were not the right fit. Um, so I was writing again for a while, and then I met my current agent, Courtney Miller Callahan, and we talked about where I wanted my where I wanted my career to go. And I did tell her that overall, in terms of career, I really was interested in exploring. New York Times, you know, the New York, not New York Times bestselling list, but hey, that's a dream, right? Mm -hmm. But New York-based traditional publishing, just to get that experience. Mm. Uh, And I should say that it it is important to understand that um, I manage a parallel career. And so I'm a regulatory consultant and subject matter expert for drug development, pharmaceutical research and development. Uh And so I was willing to play the long game when it came to the writing career right? Like yeah. my goals weren't necessarily to earn out in the business realm right away. I was willing to play the long game when it came to exploring publishing and how I could slowly build hmm. my backlist and my career. Yeah. So that's not something that every writer can do. I think the, the development of your writing career, um, can be a bunch of different paths that you can take. Uh, But she took a look at my goals and she said look i think that looking at what the particularly the the trad publishing space is acquiring right now paranormal romance science fiction romance are both uh on a downswing Mm -hmm. science fiction romance in particular is very niche and i was like okay so what are we thinking about she's like well let's talk to some of your editors who have worked with you before Mm-hmm. And and see what they love to, what they know, and they notice about your voice, and mm-hmm. that was an interesting kind of fun collaborative thing for me. Mm-hmm. So we talked to my uh, editors at Harlequin's Karina Press, and they asked if I was willing to give it a try at romantic suspense. Mm-hmm. And what you might find is that romantic suspense has a lot of the same story structure and beats, story beats, mm-hmm. as paranormal romance. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we're doing is we're really removing the paranormal element and you get a lot of the same pacing and story beats and intensity. So I was like, yeah, let me, let me take a swing. Let me read a couple of romantic suspenses. I found that I really enjoyed them. I took a swing at proposals and Mm -hmm. uh, within, (laughs) within a few months of each other, both Harlequin screener press, made an offer. And we had several uh, New York traditional publishers also uh, make an offer to acquire a second series. So within the space of just a couple of months, I ended up selling two, three book deals Uh for traditional print. And I was elated. It was the start of my traditional publishing phase of my career. and um, But I always wanted to be an indie author as well or a hybrid author Mm -hmm. because i wanted indie as well so i kept a little toe in the water in indie here and there listening and learning about what indie publishers are doing right now and indie authors who are publishing and um just nobody knows business in the romance world like indie authors do like they 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 they're agile they're dynamic they're mm-hmm. quick to pivot but they're decisive when it comes time for it and they take chances and risks that have huge payoffs mm. so much to learn from them um so now that i have you know about nine books out in traditional publishing i'm also and a I i have a four book contract with source books for upcoming books i'm also looking at re-releasing some of my um earlier works as Mm -hmm. P.J. Schneider under my Piper J. Drake name, uh, Indie, and also looking at potentially working on some new projects in Indie as well so that I can really start to balance out that hybrid career. And so that evolution that we were talking about at the beginning is, is really that all of these genres that I've been writing in, all, all of it's been evolution and let's try this and let's think about this. What would be fun? What would my readers enjoy? What would, what would allow me to reach new readers and potentially be discovered by new readers? Mm-hmm. A lot of those questions.
0: I'm, you know, I'm impressed that you remembered what the original question was <laughs> and tied it back together. That was, that was great. Cause I had almost forgot. I was like, Oh, let along on this journey. Well, oh,
1: that's what storytellers do, right? They lead you on the journey, and then you bring you back. back. You
0: brought it back. You gave me the pay. <laughs> you paid off. That's great. Well, I guess one of the questions, I guess, from the very beginning of the story was, you know, so you won a contest in 2010, and that kind of launched your career, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, was that the very first novel you'd ever written?
1: No, I definitely um, doodled a story through the later part of high school and doodled another story in college, like literally doodled in the margins of my notebooks. Mm. (laughs) I was the kind of student, um, I was your honors track AP student uh, with an AP English teacher who told me that I definitely would never become a writer. So I should focus on science and math. Oh, yes.
0: Uh, This is like Uh, the cliche is, is real.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I, I will say that for every English teacher who is like, don't write, I had an English teacher somewhere along the way that said, do write. I enjoyed that. So Mm. let's say it balanced out for me. Good. Across my high school career. Uh, But my AP English teacher, most definitely, she and I were not compatible and that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But In any case, uh, one of the things that I found, no matter what class I was in, whether it was physics, whether it was anatomy and physiology, um, I had a tendency to have my notes for the class on the right-hand side of the page and Mm. doodles on my left-hand side of the page of just different stories that were going on in my mind. And that's what helped me focus on being able to take my notes and and pay attention to the lecture. Interesting. So full-on novels came out in the form of written pages uh, and it was kind of funny because the one that I wrote in high school became the backstory for one of my published works, Hunting Cat, which is uh, was published, I think, 2011 or 2012 through Karina Press. Uh, mm-hmm. Those rights have now reverted back to me, so I'll be re-releasing that in the next year or so once I take another pass because my voice has very much changed from my beginning stories to now. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to take a pass just to make sure and also in those beginning days I didn't I wasn't I was mm-hmm. as I am now about certain issues and I wanted to make sure I want to take another path to make sure yeah. that I don't um, feed into any problematic representation
0: would uh, you share would you be willing to share more about that I mean that's that's definitely something that's been on my mind in the last last while just with my own work and I'm curious What your take is on that for yourself, what you've been noticing. Sure. Yeah.
1: I think let's talk about Hunting Cat specifically, since we were talking about that. Hunting Cat, I wrote in high school, right? Her backstory of them of the main protagonist or heroine. Uh and so in high school, I was writing high school kids going through an adventure in space, uh, Triton Moon Base, Triton Mm. being a moon (laughs) around Neptune. And uh and really thinking about what would life in space on a moon base be like. And I I had everybody in domes and I had a single biodome at the center, Mm -hmm. you know, doodling maps and things like that. Um, but I really did write what my experience was at the time as a high school student, which was predominantly, um, cis het white students. Mm -hmm. Nobody was out to the best of my knowledge. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wasn't one of the popular kids, so I didn't really know a lot of what was going on in a very large school. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did know that I was one of very few minority or marginalized groups. Um, And that, you know, high school life was, was one where I internalized a lot as the norm. Mm -hmm. And so then When it came to Hunting Cat, which was written with that original novel as backstory, I think that carried a bit into Cat's character, who is the heroine. And in particular, this is a novella. So we have a very short story, very fast paced, very specific beats, not a lot of secondary story arcs going on. So we're really focused on Cat. Mm -hmm. Um, Cat has a little bit of the not like other girls commentary. Uh, Mm -hmm. She has a friend who is a ship's engineer, uh, very reminiscent of Kaylee from Firefly
2: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, in ways. And I wrote Kaylee to be very, very sensual and joyous at the same time, which is very similar to the Kaylee of, uh, and her name's the ship's engineer is not Kaylee in hunting cat, but that, that Kaylee inspired character, Mm -hmm. um, you know, took on some of that joy, some of that embracing her sensuality and her femininity, but still being really, really good at what she did.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, yeah. you know, they have a conversation that's very binary in terms of sexuality. Uh, so that's that's one thing where I've learned better now. I think is that you know, there's a lot out there about sexual orientation that I just didn't know at the time. And so mm-hmm. their conversation about was pretty non-judgmental about you know what gets you revved up. Mm-hmm. But it was very binary. Mm-hmm. And so I'd like to adjust that a little bit to leave it open and out there for a less extreme definition of what's interesting to Kat. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's another scene in there where Kat walks into a bar, but uh our our hero, her counterpart Rygaard, is in the bar first. And there's a scene where he sets the stage. He's very bitter, he's just gotten a dear John letter space style. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's very, very bitter as he's looking around. And it's okay for him to be bitter and angry at women because he just got dumped by his fiance. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bar itself was a wasted opportunity because I made it, again, very binary. You know, all military men mm-hmm. and the females were all ladies of the night. Mm-hmm. And I could have done better, I no. could have made it much more of a a varied group of individuals and people and, and seeing things. And even if he's salty, you know, he doesn't have to be a misogynist. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that I would like to do better with setting that, that particular scene as well. So those are the kinds of things that I'd like to go back and, and handle better in the novel, the novella is that world building aspect where the characters, their discussions, I'd like them to be more inclusive without being obvious. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. want anybody suffering any slander so that I can make a point about these things. What I want is just for it to become completely accepted and part of the world that, you know, we're more inclusive.
0: And I imagine just from another angle, writing it with that sensitivity allows the possibility for more people to see themselves in the story, right?
1: Uh, I would love for that. If that, if that's helpful, I think that there's a lot of people who try to address problematic issues by writing them in painful ways to prove a point that it's that bad out there. Mm -hmm. And that's one choice. Mm -hmm. But for those who have lived it, that's a little bit traumatic to have to read it because we live it every day in real life. Right. Instead, what I find myself doing more often, I won't say always because there's always situations where, you know, there's a reason why you want to do a thing. Yeah. But for the most part, what I strive to do instead is to make it quietly a part of the world, make it the default that I want to see in the world and and change the world in my world building so that that's, that's just the way the world is. It's not a thing to call out. Yeah.
0: The thing I, I mean, that's, I think that's, that's great that you're aware of that and making that choice. And and I'm curious, you know, for you growing up, sounds like you are already pretty set on the idea of becoming a writer by high school, you know, whether you were encouraged or discouraged, depending on the teacher, um, sounds like you had a love of story. And I guess it's a two-part question I have: it was like one, like like how did you come to like know that you wanted to be a writer? But two, I I assume you read a lot and or watched a lot of TV or whatever it was. Um, did you see yourself, just tying it into that representation, did you see yourself in the stories you were consuming?
1: Oh, gosh, let's answer question two first. Okay. <laughs> uh, I was an early reader. Yeah. Uh, my mother is, uh, I, I refer to her often on social media as the Piper Mommy. She. <laughs> she's an amazingly voracious enthusiastic reader of many many genres and maybe that's part of the reason why i love writing so many genres but she consumes so many different stories and uh, she both my parents are from thailand Uh, they grew up in thailand went to school in thailand uh, saved up went through their undergrad years their university years in thailand but they came they saved up and they made the leap for Mm -hmm. a better life To come to the U.S. for their master's degrees and to build their lives here. Mm. Uh, And I was born here in Syracuse, at Syracuse, like just outside of Syracuse University where they were doing their master's degrees. Mm. And um, we I remember early, early days. We're talking age three, age four. Um, my mom would read every night and I started to read the pages with her because why not? And I'm sure I started with some children's books, but the, Mm -hmm. the earliest memories of the stories that I loved to listen to were the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, uh, which we were already reading together. And I was reading a page at a time and then I would be reading two or three pages at a time Then I'd be reading a chapter and she'd be reading a chapter to give her voice a rest Mm -hmm. before I even went to kindergarten. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, I feel, I was very fortunate that I was introduced to language and introduced to reading so early. And then when my sister was born five years after me, you know, I continued that tradition and we just kept reading these books. And I remember having books like that, also having The Trumpet of the Swan and, and Stuart Little and, oh gosh, all of these books. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, the other thing is that I was a latchkey kid, which mm-hmm. is not something you do nowadays. But with not two parents who are full time, But back then, it was very much more common.
2: Yeah.
1: To be a latchkey kid, uh, but there were some times where, rather than me going straight home, um, my parents would say, "Okay, well, why don't you get on this bus and and you'll get off at this stop and you'll go to the library next to your mom's office building." Mm-hmm. Things like that. And so the library became my after school place where I would hopefully if I saw one of the study rooms open, I'd take it over and and read in there. But if you know there were students in there, I didn't bother any, but I would just find a quiet corner of the library to read. And I had full run of the science fiction and fantasy areas. Mm. And the librarians got so used to to seeing me that they kind of knew me on site. They knew that I was respectful of the books, that I always put the books away, or I checked them out when I was leaving. Mm. And uh, so I was reading Michael Crichton. I was reading Terry Brooks' Shannara series in in third grade. I did encounter Tog Cabot, Slave Girl of Gore in third grade, and that was a fascinating read at that time. Mm. I remember my mother caught me with our encyclopedia, Britannia, looking up the word ravish to try to figure out what that meant. So we had a (laughs) little discussion about that. Uh And then she just asked me, like, what do you think? And I'm like, well, It's really great world building and it's really, really compelling argument. I just, I don't think I'd want to live on that planet. And she's like, okay, carry on. (laughs) And that's how we continue to read. So my love of story started early with a love of books. Mm -hmm. And I remember year after year after year of Christmas, my Christmas list was books which my mom happily fulfilled because she wanted to read them too. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I, was pretty, I was pretty fast at catching up to an adult's reading ability. So, you know, we were just sharing books. She was devastated when I left for college and took books with me <laughs> from the family <laughs> library. We had quite the discussion about Anne McCaffrey and Mercedes Lackey and whether I was allowed to take them with me. Patricia Briggs I discovered luckily in early college, so I didn't have to fight with my mom about those books. They were mine. I had acquired them in, in bookstores myself, uh, you know. And also my mother was a great storyteller. Mm. I grew up, as we were growing up, we would go some su- summers to Thailand to spend time with my grandparents and to learn the Thai language and culture. Uh, and so I remember she would walk us around Kaew. The walls around Kaew and the ancient palace are painted in murals of the Ramakian which is very similar to the, oh, I'm going to pronounce it incorrectly, so I I apologize, but I always have it stuck in my head as the Ramayana, because that's how you pronounce it sometimes in Thai. But I think that depending on the dialect or the country that you come from, it's definitely different. (laughs) But the Ramakian, or the story of Rama, um, is depicted on the walls and murals. And mom would walk around the walls and tell us the stories. And she had deeply read into all the different epics. So she would go off these little side parts of the murals and tell us side epic stories about different supporting characters that were not the main core, because this is an epic,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: right? And Hanuman alone fathered so many children, and each of them has their own epic, go find my father story. (laughs) And then there's all these different mythical creatures, and she'd get on these tangents about these mythical creatures and what they were. One of my favorites was the Kinari, or the bird princess, and the whole story of Menorah, the bird princess, uh, is a whole nother separate epic story. And I heard all of these. And, you know, we were we were learning a lot of these Thai folktales through my mom and what she remembered. Because there really weren't any books written by Thai people in English about it. Mm-hmm. And mm. even now, as an adult, when I say, well, can I get a Thai mythology book? Mom's like, no, no. There's, there's not, they're not really out there right now. I'll, I'll keep an eye out because she lives in Thailand now. Mm, okay. She's like, I'll keep an eye out. But I mean, there's these other ones, but they're almost all written by um, Western scholars in tandem with a consultant who was Thai, which is not quite the voice that I'm looking for. You know, I'm looking for what I remember the love I remember, the magic I remember of this oral storytelling yeah. from my mother. So storytelling was a part of my life early, early on. And to get to your second, or your first question about writing, I would doodle stories about as early as, oh gosh. I mean, all kids tell stories. I knew, or I dreamed of like, oh, maybe I can write probably pretty early on. And I was very early told to be more pragmatic, of course. Be a doctor or a lawyer. I had that uncle who's like, "Be a doctor or a lawyer. Be a doctor or a lawyer. You're smart mm-hmm. enough,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right?" And so I never thought of writing as a primary career path, and no one ever told me you could have more than one. Yeah, but uh, I started to think, "Hey, I can I can handle this." And there's something missing, you know. I around 2008 2009, I had already established my primary career in life sciences and I was making good money. I was financially stable. I was about to go through a divorce Mm. and I decided, you know, I really, really want to recover parts of me because Mm. at that time I'd, um, sacrificed some things for the marriage, including, uh, books, stories, movies, entertainment, anime, and manga in particular because they were considered ch- children's things hmm. and that we should use the money instead to uh, focus on things for us and our adult life like cars. Yeah and and, and whatnot. Um, so once the divorce was coming, I started to reclaim parts of myself and that included my storytelling. Uh, and I realized as I was writing and then also, examining those with a critical eye and saying, what genre is this? I realized I wasn't writing science fiction. I was reading romance
2: Mm.
1: with (laughs) science fiction elements, but it was still the core storyline was a romantic relationship arc. Yeah, And that this qualifies as romance, you know, and I was practical that way. And I was like, you know, it's not such a bad thing. In fact, it's delightful to Mm -hmm. write happily ever afters for someone else's story. So I'll keep doing that. And I still love it.
0: so just, I guess for you to realize that maybe implies that you had to examine that and, and think about it, that you were mm-hmm. you were okay with that and embracing that romance was what you' are writing. Was there a stigma in your mind you know attached to that?
1: Oh, I had absolutely internalized this the science fiction fantasy, oh gosh. Uh, I'm ba- I'm old enough to be like back in the the, the early '90s. Uh, there was a a old school website in HTML about the <laughs> five geek social fallacies, and that was new at the time for us, right? Like I used yeah. to. I mean, I did. My first computer was a Tandy one thousand XL. Yeah. Um, and and so I I fell lucky. That I was growing up, you know, like middle school, we had typing classes. Mm-hmm. High school, wow, the honors class got classes in logo and basic. It was <laughs> fantastic, right? Um, go to college, and Windows ninety five came out. <laughs> You're like, yeah, this is great. Um, so yeah, the five geek social set- fallacies was something that was around during my college years. And I had definitely really immersed myself in tabletop RPGs with a bunch of friends from Stephen Technical Institute in Hoboken mm. and, um, and also Japanese Anime Club back in the days, of like the fan suburbs and the VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. And anime cons and science fiction cons attended Icon up in Stony Brook. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved it because it was this wonderful amalgamation of science lectures as they pertain to science fiction writing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but at night we had Rocky Horror Picture Show, so it was like a really wonderful <laughs> variety, shall we say, <laughs>
2: uh-huh.
1: of programming content. And um, yeah, it was it was interesting because at that time I had really absorbed a lot of things like the gatekeeping and encountered the gatekeeping around: are you really a great geek girl or are you a poser? Uh-huh. Right? Like, yeah. are you a fake geek girl? Prove it. Right. Yeah. And so there was a lot of that flavor of stuff going on. And also the, I don't read romance. Mm. I read science fiction and I read fantasy. I don't read romance. Mm. And a lot of that uh, preconception that that romance was this genre that I just never read. Like, I didn't necessarily carry, fortunately, any of the commentary about bodice rippers. Mm-hmm. But even back in the day with Mercedes Lackey had the Diana Trugard series, which had to stop precipitously. For various reasons, which I respect. Uh, but even Diana Tregard, who was basically, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, a romance writer to make money. You know, she didn't have a whole lot of respect for the genre that she wrote, that mm-hmm. character. Mm-hmm.
0: That right? would show up in the writing, I would expect, yeah.
1: Well, yeah, well, the, the, I mean, the character's voice. Like, I don't know what Mercedes Lackey's opinion of it. She may really, really love romance. Yeah. But the character gave me the impression where I it took was, away from the character. Um, mm-hmm. Right? So it may not even be Mercedes Lackey's fault at all. It may be what I took from the character as it was written, right, and carried it away was that, wow, Diana Trigard even is like, you know, she writes it because it makes money, but, ah, bodice rippers, You know, and Mm -hmm. the other thing about it is that I definitely had a lot of that taste myself and any other lady friends that I had, people who identified as female, um, not like all those other girls Mm -hmm. kind of syndrome. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a part of our mentality. That's how we found confidence was that we weren't like those other girls.
0: Mm. So there's a piece of identity to that that you would have to let go if you're going to embrace writing romance.
1: exactly because romance is about a celebration particularly of ladies and women and Mm. but more importantly about the fact that you know more about equality and consent and inclusiveness Mm. at least that's what it's been for me
0: yeah so i was gonna say i've 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 seen enough and edited enough to to know that it can vary in values Mm.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. yeah so I like how you say for you it's it's a celebration and it's these other things and so when you're writing and exploring and playing and evolving like like how much conscious thought is going in before you write now about like subtext and what you want to accomplish with it versus just having fun exploring and seeing what
1: happens. To be honest, particularly in this stage of my life, mm. writing is very much about chasing joy. Mm. So I'm writing stories that delight me. And on the revision pass, I watch out for gotchas and issues that I could do better. Mm. Right. So it is definitely very much about creating a roller coaster ride of a story that's beautiful mm. and emotional. Um, you know, maybe a little action packed for fun, you know, definitely love those little bursts of laughter here and there. Uh, But on the revision pass, I watch and say, Hey, don't do harm while you're at this. Mm.
0: Mm. And like, what would be examples of doing harm or if we already covered that ground with the representation piece?
1: There's a lot of ways. I mean, I, I, I will say uh, in advance of writing the way I build my characters. I try to make sure that I'm not misrepresenting characters. Mm-hmm. I am thoughtful about my characters as I'm building them because their identity includes uh, their ethnicity and whether or not they're marginalized in any other way. Mm-hmm. You know, and is that my story to tell? Is their participation in my story mm-hmm. something that is an identity? journey for them because if it's an identity journey for them i may not it may not be my place to portray that experience yeah so i just make sure that their story arc what they're learning how they're developing through the course of the story whether they're a main character or a supporting character is one um, of evolution for them but it's not necessarily one that defines their identity Mm -hmm. almost all my characters for the most part are all my characters who are an experience other than my own. I hate Mm -hmm. using the word other because it's so, (laughs) so powerful right now. Um, Mm -hmm. but experiences other than my own, I try to make sure that the story that I tell for them and through them is not an identity of who they are, but maybe they have things that they're evolving and changing because they want to. Mm -hmm. And, and. I try to make sure to stick to the, the spirit of that as much as possible. So rather than someone finding out that they're gay and coming out in the book, um, it's about the fact that they own that they're gay and maybe they have backstory and maybe they have issues to resolve about that backstory, but their story arc within my story is maybe what they want to do with their career or maybe what they want to do with, um, taking a break from their current career and chasing their joy in a different way. Mm. So it's not about the fact that they're gay. It just Mm. so happens that that's a major component of what makes them who they are and why they make their decisions. Yeah. So I try to make sure that way when I'm reading through that I'm representing that as well as I can, based Mm. on my knowledge, I make sure to get sensitivity readers in if those characters are, are major threads in the tapestry Mm-hmm. Um, minor supporting characters who pop in and shine. Generally speaking, I feel pretty comfortable that if they've only got you know, a couple of appearances, very brief appearances in a couple of scenes, that I can probably get sensitivity to readers for those scenes as opposed to the whole book. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I try to make sure from that angle that I'm not harmful in representing somebody in a way that's harmful to them. I'm still learning about areas where i could be unconsciously ableist yeah this is definitely something that i'm learning about um you know i do my best and i will always be learning and there will always be room for me to do better
0: yeah yeah how huh. so i imagine your writing process has evolved quite a bit you know um but i'm curious just for for the listener's sake like when we're talking about you know, sounds, you give them the impression you've written a lot of books in the last 10 years. So do you have kind of a ballpark of how many we're talking about?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I'm going to cheat. I have my website in front of me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so the True Hero series has six books and a, and a short story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so six full-length novels and a short story. So it's seven titles. Safeguard series has three, so three novels, so that's ten titles. And then of the standalone titles that I have under the Piper J. Drake currently, uh, we have six more. So we're at 16 now. Mm -hmm. Uh, As P.J. Schneider, before I became Piper J. Drake, I also had the London Undead series, which was three novellas, as well as the Triton Experiment series, which was a novella and a novel. So that's five titles and then various short stories for the tales uh from bleh, for the tales of the art tales from the archives for the ministry of peculiar occurrences it's a very long thing <laughs> uh two short stories there as well as having written the setting for the ministry initiative right um this was and that then i also yeah. yes yeah and that was done by um myself. It was a fake core RPG, actually. And J.R. Blackwell uh, did the game mechanics. I wrote the setting uh, within the RPG game. And then I also wrote in a couple of anthologies. For example, J.R. Blackwell did a a LARP RPG. And that was um, Shelter in Place. And it had a sister anthology called Gimme Shelter. And so Mm -hmm. I have a straight up science fiction zombie apocalypse story in there as well as several short stories and the Terras Guardian series which was a novella and a novel right so we're in the
0: 20s sure and how many more story ideas have you had as a like as a ratio compared to the stories you've actually written
1: oh my goodness yeah quite a like dozens
0: Okay, I generally
1: so, nowadays will put together a proposal and email it to my agent for safekeeping to save myself from myself.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that's your process for avoiding the uh, shiny new object. Um,
1: it's, it's not a hundred percent effective, but yeah, that's one, that's step one. Cause I, what will end up happening is, you know, you'll be out in Twitter or Facebook. Most often it's happened in Twitter, but yeah. it's happened in Facebook as well, where There'll be conversations on the internet going on and I'll be like, oh, I'd love to write this thing. Yeah. Like, I think most recently what happened was I was like, oh, I would love to write a cyber cutie K-pop star meets a badass lady mercenary. Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I just tweeted that. I was like, yes. And other people were like, gimme. (laughs) And a couple of editors pinged my agent and were like, so, about that proposal. And she would, she'll be like, Piper June. Did you pitch on Twitter again? And I'm like, no, I didn't I didn't pitch. Didn't your I almost couldn't pitch.
0: Didn't your mama teach you not to go on Twitter?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so and it's just one of those things where I was like, I love I would love to write this thing and then somebody was like, Gimme. Hmm. There was another one about two sentient libraries whose relationship develops with a messenger Corgi. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like that grew out of somebody else's idea and I just took it further with the Corgi. I I, I truly didn't pitch that one.
0: <laughs> well,
1: so that's happened.
0: So I'm hearing the joy. Like that, that's obviously a fun part and maybe along the way in your journey, like you've learned the difference between like a fully formed idea and what's a pitchable idea and, and those kinds of things. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. But so you're at this point now. So you, you're probably an idea factory. You get all these ideas. How do you, how do you choose what you're going to write next, or how do you choose what
1: to let go of? There's a phrase that we use in regulatory in drug development, and I should probably make a T-shirt. At it. Almost everybody who's directly reported to me laughs because I, I say it all the time whenever somebody asks me a question. Mm. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> um, when it comes to ideas... What is pitchable right now versus what's pitchable at another time? Yeah. Right. Like every idea is going to be pitchable eventually.
0: Well, so in in 2021, what's the answer?
1: Oh, gosh. All right. So right now what I am writing because it was pitchable, um, And that's a very long story. We won't get too far into it. But I'm writing a paranormal romance. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't originally supposed to be a paranormal romance, but that's how it worked out. Uh, So I pitched to my agent that I wanted to write uh, a consortium of various paranormals. And they are all dedicated to finding objects of myth and magic and to take them out of harm's way. Mm. Or actually, not even take them out of harm's way take them out of the hands of humans who might be harmed by them, okay. shall we say? Mm-hmm. And and then so she explored that and she's like, all right, like how, how fantastical is this? Like, where would you see this? Where would you look for this in bookshelves? I'm like, you mean what metadata would I look for if I was searching for this digitally? And she's like, that too. Because mm-hmm. a part of my subject matter expertise is metadata.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. And so... Uh, We talked about that a little bit. I said, you know, i really like this to be very much like the like a Shadowrun versus World of Darkness, you know, like which one are we going for? And she's like, well, Shadowrun, I would probably put in urban fantasy or fantasy, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: depending on the elements and where you took the story. And I was like, I really see this more as a World of Darkness, where you have um, a World of Darkness campaign, where you have the real world and there's just paranormal elements that not every human is aware of. Mm. As they walk through the world, mm-hmm. and she's like, "Okay, yes, all right," and then we would go from there. and And so, what I know is that paranormal is swinging back into interest in the trad world, but it's always been there in the indie world. Mm-hmm. There have been readers who have been gobbling up paranormal romance all along, the yeah, entire it's... time that the trad industry has said that it's dead.
0: Yeah, it's it's it seems like anything that trad says is dead becomes a pretty high bank item for indie authors i talked to <laughs> for sure Paranormal. honest to goodness
1: yeah. yeah i mean there's there's also the idea there's also the idea that you know we miss our werewolves and we miss our vampires mm. we want more right like if you look vampire diaries not only the books but the tv series ended and then the original spun off from that and the legacy spun off of that yeah. what's next People yeah. come off of those major, major IPs, <laughs> major properties, and they're they're hungry for the next thing. Yeah. And while they're looking for the next big thing, they're gobbling up the tastes of it that they want. And I'm not saying that that the Vampire Diaries legacies and originals were the only thing out there, but they're indicative that there is um, there is an appetite. Okay. For those stories.
0: Yeah. So you're, you're, it sounds like there's quite a bit of collaboration with your agent in in this, in this process. And yes, but you mentioned an interest also in in hybrid publishing and wanting to take more books indie as well. So how do you, how do you, for what you're writing, distinguish or differentiate between trad publishing books and when you want to like how do you know when you want something to go trad pub or something to go indie like do they look different just at the very idea stage or
1: i think going on there there's a lot of factors that go into that really i think one of the first things is am i established in the genre mm-hmm. because trad publishing's marketing distribution has no parallel Right. As an indie author, if I don't have a foothold in the genre already, it's really hard to be discoverable to new readers. It'll be much slower. I'm not saying you can't do it. It's just it's a much more uphill, long climb mm-hmm. to become discoverable. Whereas, you know, what I'm thinking about now is, hey, if I want to go back to paranormal romance, like I'm well established in romantic suspense. If I mm-hmm. wanted to take some stories, indie stories, stories romantic suspense or contemporary, I have a much better chance because my readership will read it and also word of mouth, share it. Right. Mm. You know, but the fact that this next contract at this next series that I'm doing for a traditional publishers, paranormal romance, it is my chance to also put out similar element things that won't compete with my paranormal romance series. Yeah. Right, so the fact that I'm re-releasing some of my old paranormal romance, so that it kind of tides my readers over in between release the slower releases of the trad, mm. could work well in my mm-hmm. favor, without competing with my new series. Right, my London Undead series, which I'd like to re-release, is is ground zero of the zombie apocalypse, werewolves hunting zombies to protect humans that are stuck inside the quarantine zone. That's very, very different from a world of darkness flavored the librarians kind of feel paranormal romance, which is what I'm writing for my trad. Yeah. They have shared elements, werewolves, right? Vampires, witches, but they're built very, very differently. And the rules that govern their supernatural abilities are very, very different in each of the worlds. And I mean, zombie apocalypse versus not a zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Right. So there are different fields, they are different flavors, but they're very... They have enough things in common that that readers get pulled through.
0: So do you you feel then that it sounds like you maybe think you have a few different audiences that don't overlap necessarily?
1: I think they're big Venn diagrams, and the overlaps may be larger or smaller depending. Romantic suspense um, may have a bigger overlap to paranormal romance than I anticipated because the action, the pacing, the beats... But there's a pretty good chunk of people who are like, I'm, I have no interest in the supernatural. Mm-hmm. I think that I have a bigger portion of a potential paranormal romance readership who would read anything, including contemporary. Like, right. I think if they fell in love with my dog, Max, from Triton Experiment series, which was Science Vines Romance, then they would love my True Heroes series because there's military working dogs in every book. Mm. and so if, if max was their favorite side character they'd go to the true hero series even though it was romantic suspense and not in space and not supernatural for the dogs <laughs>
0: yeah well it sounds like you know how to reach those readers um so how do you manage that do you have like an email list how are you how are you able to tap into that for self-published work
1: Oh, gosh, still a work in progress. I think I've learned quite a lot from Gail, actually, and several other authors who I work with. Also, Maria Bradley mm. is a, a font of interesting information. She's, um, she's one of those personalities that loves to learn. She herself is a professor of physics in mm. um, you know, Washington University, and she loves to learn. She loves to teach. She shares so many awesome tidbits and ideas. Uh, and Katie Robert is another person that I have very frequently in interviews sung the praises of because she's super savvy. And one of the things that I love about her is that not only is she quick to learn, but she's quick to take action. Like Hmm. it's, it's it's almost like she's definitely one of those impulsive immediate gratification people who just Hmm. boom, makes a decision and goes and runs off and does the thing. And you're like, wait, okay. (laughs) But what's fantastic about her is she's so quickly actioning that she's also able to pivot if she realizes that this didn't go well. So we have a phrase in my day job career called where we say that, you know, if you're going to fail, fail fast.
0: Yeah. That does take a lot of energy to to manage that way.
1: It does, but fail and fail fast means that you took a big risk if you don't fail, it's a huge payoff. If you mm-hmm. do fail, you figured it out fast, didn't leak money, turn around, pivot, and go do something else. And that is something that she's amazingly good at, mm-hmm. fantastically good at. She doesn't let failure slow her down. If it didn't fail, all right, I'll try something else. All right, you know, and they're all intelligent. I'll try something else, not mm-hmm. flailing. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that that's that's a business acumen that I look for. Whether it's in my day job or in my writing career, it's, it's people who have minds like that. Yeah.
0: So, sounds like you're soaking up a lot and are inspired.
1: Um, oh, yeah, gosh. One of the things I'm... I love about Romance Landia is that so many of my romance colleagues share a wealth of ideas and information. So many are so generous. When I had, when my spinal issue became much more apparent, and, and I actually literally lost the use of my hands for good portion of 2019, Mm. there were so many romance authors who were generous with their time to help me figure out dictation at a very scary time in my life. They just hopped on the phone and talked me through what their process was. So I could take what I, I, you know, take what would work for me and try it out. Yeah. They were hugely helpful. Like I've, I very rarely, you know, throughout the course was like trying to join writing groups because you know i was on the old forums prodigy forums remember mm-hmm. prodigy
0: yeah yeah I, and
1: I, <laughs> yeah. we're, and we're definitely a, we're definitely Megatokyo. in the
0: in the geek yeah. fogey community here
1: yeah yeah and i was one of the old fogies from the mega tokyo forums which you know was actually mm. a label for us in the wiki which is why i mentioned old fogey
0: okay um, a lot of shadow run here yeah
1: yeah and, um, oh gosh, yeah. We definitely played quite a few Shadowrun campaigns in college. And I remember, you know, there would be writing forums. There would be, there would be, um, areas, topic mm. areas for writing. And I try to get into those and people just ignored me, mm.
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, but once I, and and I'm not saying romance doesn't have people that ignored me too, but I gotta say it was such a higher ratio Mm. Of colleagues who were generous with their time and their ideas. Yeah. Um, brainstorming, joyfully brainstorming. Mm. And also people who would tell you straight out, like, hey. And maybe it was their place, maybe it wasn't, but they would, they'd be, they'd speak their mind about their opinions. <laughs> uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> and that was that was something I appreciated as well.
0: Yeah. You know, you haven't used the word shenanigans once so far. I feel like that would
1: have been the time. time. <laughs> I don't know.
0: <laughs> hey, you know, it's gotta be authentic. You gotta let it it does. It's gotta it go. come.
1: It's gotta come organically.
0: <laughs> so can, your community's been huge and, and you mentioned your health and you you know you've got two jobs and and this comes up and you know. So how are you? Like finding balance or how do you manage your energy in a way where you can continue to chase joy and, and, and be productive if that's a goal for you, you know?
1: Uh, Well, you know, I used to be a really strong, strong proponent of the work hard, play hard Mm -hmm. scenario, but with uh, medical challenges, my spine being only one of many Mm. uh, that I have faced over the years, I am, I must admit that I am not a likely survivor of the initial phase of the zombie apocalypse at this time and long-term probably also not going to be okay. A little too reliant on modern medicine. Mm. Um, So I can't say work hard, play hard anymore. And in Mm. fact, I will say that I have recently had to face potentially because of heavy duty burnout Mm. and extreme stress driving me, to hypertensive crisis i'm probably Mm. going to take a break from my day job career Mm. for the time being Mm. and um use that time to rest Mm. and get better at resting and get better at building long-term sustainable coping mechanisms Mm. for handling stress Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, so i'm not good at it right now Mm. i will i have to confess there's um any sign of a kerfuffle at this time for me is so stressful that I have to take myself from out away from the situation. Yeah. So, um, I cannot willy nilly just jump into things and be like, "Woohoo, I got this. Yeah. Uh, I have to decide like, Hey, do I have the energy? Do I have the bandwidth? Do I have the spoons? Mm. Mm-hmm. And I have to listen to my body. And if my blood pressure is telling me, Nope, you're out mm-hmm. <laughs> I have to step out and um, I'm not good at recognizing those warning signals yet. Yeah. So that is my first step. Yeah. My first step is learning to recognize those warning signals as I follow the care plan that my physicians and I have decided are the way we're going to approach getting me back to a healthier me. Yeah. And that does mean that I'm taking a break from my day job career. And that is a loss of a part of my identity that I mm. am going to have to process. hmm. know i am doing this thing and one of the things that i decided that i would do is explore other things that again chasing joy that are completely random that i didn't ever explore because i had a day job yeah so for example like i mentioned icon a long time ago i used to go to that con and Mm -hmm. um i remember um um one of the anime studios asked me to submit audition tapes for voice. Mm. I said, no, I'm sorry. I got a day job. I can't go up to a New York studio at the drop of a hat or when there's a job during the week. I, I can't. Mm-hmm. And so it was a, an opportunity, a huge one, a chance that I completely didn't even think twice. Just like, nope, got a day job. Yeah. So I'm starting to look into voice work now. Oh. Um, for the fun of it, who knows? I don't know if it would be a career yet. I don't know if it would result in any kind of, um, uh, professional work yet, but I'm mm-hmm. looking into it because it sounds fun.
2: Yeah.
1: And I think that that's, you know, that's a turn in my thought process. Like here, let me explore this random thing. That's fun because I never did it before. And hijinks ensue. Hijinks. Right? And yeah. Yeah, I mean, and maybe shenanigans will occur. And you know what? I'll embrace <laughs> that. I'm all about the shenanigans in the best of ways. Uh, and I just think that, you know, and I will, there, there will be times when I'll be like, nope, that didn't work. And that's okay. Because I am also a proponent of the fail and fail fast. Mm. And then mm-hmm. go, you know, go, go put your time into something else. Better to do that than not to fail fast and find you dropped all of this time and effort and energy and investment into a thing that isn't going to fail i mean it isn't going to succeed
0: yeah so yeah that takes discernment and awareness and yeah and that internal radar that you're talking about developing that's well that's huge i'm glad you shared that um and that's a vulnerable thing and generous of you to share with listeners because Yeah, I think that's one of those universal elements that we all encounter on our journeys, or have encountered, or have yet to encounter. Really think about is like that those ideas of of how do we listen to our bodies and manage our energy and
1: Yeah. Well, I think also our energy first story. Yeah. Right, because there's so much advice around proving that you can finish the book.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Right. But also, when you have many ideas and you don't know which one's the one that is going to sell,
2: yeah,
1: um, it doesn't hurt to explore with writing. Write a chapter. If you mm-hmm. don't know what point of view that you want, write a sample scene in both points of view. Yeah. And you fail by fa- and fail fast because you read that scene and goes, which one's pops more? Which mm-hmm. story pops more? Write yourself proposals and say, hey, which one was most fun to write? Yeah. And, and then go with that one because that's the book that's going to have the momentum. And that doesn't mean that you have to delete the other chapters from the other books. It wasn't wasted effort.
2: Yeah.
1: It's just, Hey, and I think I see a lot of writers who have spent five, 10 years on a novel.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when they realize they can't sell it, they also can't let it go. And so yeah. they never write another one. And yes. I, I very strongly recommend, Hey, write another idea, write three other ideas. Like, yes, you poured this energy and this time and this investment into that one. And it wasn't wasted. You learned. But now write some new ideas yeah. and write chapters of him. not mm. just, hey, this is the idea, which one's pitchable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Write a chapter, write two chapters, write three chapters, depending mm. on which story structure you're going with, whether it's three act structure, whether it's four act structure, whether you're going with the hero's journey, whether you're going with the heroine's journey, mm. whatever, write write a segment of it and figure out which one your voice comes through the most and, and have those internal checks that way too, because yeah. that's the thing that's pitchable. Isn't just it. Yeah. It's where your voice, your shot, your voice shines through.
0: Yeah. And early on, that may be hard to know, but I, I don't hear that advice a lot and I like it because writing is a big investment of time and i know that for many people no matter what they aspire to do put a lot of pressure on winning fast you know that that idea of succeeding fast or there's this lack of patience to it and you call you mentioned about your own journey early on in our talk that you like to take the long view or play the long game and what you're recommending sounds very patient and uh <laughs> and healthy well in the tortoise probably. and the
1: hare right yeah in the tortoise and the hare i kind of always rooted for the tortoise yeah honestly yeah and i think that that's it's also not necessarily going to take longer mm-hmm. if you fail and fail fast in software mm-hmm. um you waste a lot less time than if you stick with a solution, a potential solution that is going to fail further down the road and be yeah. an even more expensive mistake, yeah. right? Like a lot of people will write and they will slog through to prove they can finish this book. But even by the, uh, and by the end of that book, they even, even they hate it. Mm-hmm. That's a mm-hmm. lot of time invested when they could have been working on a story that they love.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So do you find it like easier or harder to write you know, right now we're in that time when you're feeling that stress and burnout. Is it? You
1: know, oh, my gosh, it's way harder. Yeah. Words just don't show up. Or, yeah. like, there was a good chunk of last year where nothing was coming out at all, particularly not in romantic suspense. And yeah. that was why I switched over to paranormal romance, because I literally could not. This was even with my insight into drug development, I didn't know which way the world was going to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm or what the world was going to look like coming out the other side of the pandemic. Mm. What is life going to look like? Are we going to look like that hotel in Shanghai that has literal bubbles where, you know, travelers come in and, and they have separate air system HVAC for different people who are participating and they walk into a, a business conference rooms divided by glass with separate HVAC so that they don't ever share the same air. So the chances of, of giving each other anything is low. Yeah. And since those people who traveled into the country never leave the airport and never leave the quarantine area, they don't have to worry about a quarantine period. They just fly in, have that meeting in that bubble hotel, never actually touch anyone or share even share the same air. Like their food is delivered into a little, like, separation box at their room and then they take it out of the separation box. It's really cool to look at if you check it out online. Um, Is that what all hotels and business business meetings were going to look like? I didn't know. I didn't know if there were going to be decontam modules at the library so that you decontaminate the book before you take it home or decontaminate the book once you return it. I didn't know if there was going to be identity checks at the mall so that we know exactly who comes in and out of the malls or any other um, theaters and, and public places so that if there's a spreader event, there's traceability possible. I didn't know any of that stuff. And I just became, it was analysis paralysis. I just couldn't write
2: yeah. a
1: romantic suspense around that. Yeah. Uh, so I stopped. There were no words. I stopped until I came up with a proposal for the paranormal romance and I started getting words again and I started feeling like I could write scenes and I started writing scenes that were zany and fun and then there were moments that were deep and thoughtful you know and and when I started being able to write because of that part of it was rest part of it was the giving myself permission to put this series down and part of it was just coming out of the burnout from other elements and, and, and learning stress and coping mechanisms and having safe spaces for myself.
0: That's so yeah, the pandemic is not there's been kind. <laughs> No,
1: <laughs> so you know, there's
0: I think we all know this to some extent, but it helps to acknowledge that there's a lot of things that go into successfully writing a book, right? Like, or a story. It's not just sit down and write.
1: Yeah. I mean, when it comes to creatives, writing us, writing any story, writing any book, even a nonfiction book requires a certain amount of creative energy and you can't create when you don't have the energy to give it. And when the world is literally draining the creativity out of you because of stress, depression, anxiety,
0: fear or or anger.
1: Yeah, there's a whole lot of anger.
0: Yeah.
1: Whole yeah. lot of anger, right? Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Um, it impacts you physically. It impacts you mentally. It impacts you emotionally. And there's just, uh, what are you creating?
0: Yeah, hopefully. It's hard not. to
1: even figure out how to create, like, cook your own food.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, returning to, to balance and finding your energy and, and focusing on that F word, fun. that that probably helps.
1: It does. I have to say a lot of my friends kind of led by example, Uh, also Maria Bradley and Katie Robert, for example, Um, Katie Robert in particular, (laughs) uh, because she's, she's a writer of romance and erotic romance and, and she has done uh, series after series in the pandemic that have very much been chasing her joy and have been wild and bonkers and, And incredibly delightful and scandalizing for me because I'm a much sweeter romance writer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even reading her teasers resulted in me going, Katie. Yeah. And, uh, Austin Maria Bradley and I are always talking about science and stuff, you know, and magic and, and mythology. Uh, it's been fantastic. Kate Tempest Bradford is another author that I really enjoy talking to because she has a deep interest in Egyptian mythology uh, Gail Carriger, of course, her work is so, so intellectually funny and light. I it's just, there's, there's an art to it, and and that's inspiring to me. It's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, that, is that light-hearted play element to it. Well, I know we're at time. <laughs> but I want to have give,
1: taken you a bit longer than intended. I, apologize. I love
0: long I love long conversations. I'm aware that my five-year-old rambunctious kiddo is going to make an entrance soon, sooner than later. But I want to give listeners a chance um, for those who are interested to find you. How can they do that?
1: Well, best place is to go to my website, piperjdrake.com. Mm-hmm. But I'm also pretty consistently across social media as Piper J Drake on twitter on facebook it's author piper j drake find my facebook page uh on instagram i'm piper j drake and on tiktok i'm on piper j drake great so pretty easy to find me and i would really love if anybody said hi and say that they heard me through you that would be fantastic
0: yeah yeah yes listeners don't be afraid to go look look up our friend piper and say hello i think we all enjoy hearing people say hello this time
1: (laughs) just a shout out like hey yo (laughs)
0: that's great well I enjoyed having you I hope you enjoyed being here it was my pleasure to have you
1: thank you so much and thank you for the questions it was really fun discussion
0: yeah I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the fearless storyteller As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover the Fearless Storyteller podcast.